0: If you're aware of this movement in diabetes, hashtag, we are not waiting. They're hacking together their diabetes devices to create their own closed loop system. And the FDA actually is saying, we're fine with that. We're not going to stand in the way of that innovation.
1: Emerging technology should make healthcare better. But figuring out how to achieve this is notoriously difficult and requires an understanding of both technology and culture. It seems fitting, then, that Susanna Fox, the CTO of the HHS, majored in anthropology. We're delighted to welcome one of our favorite culture warriors to today's show.
2: This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. I'm Lisa Soonan And I'm David Shaywitz. And today's episode is brought to you by DNA Nexus,
1: the secure and compliant cloud platform that enables enterprise users to analyze, collaborate around, and integrate massive amounts of genetic and other health data. So Lisa, I know that you and I are fascinated by the diverse paths people take into healthcare. For example, I was always struck by the fact that famous cancer biologist Harold Varmus was an English major who wrote his college thesis on Charles Dickens. Bob Wachter was a poli-sci major. Weren't you also poli-sci?
2: I was a poli-sci major, and my emphasis in my master's in poli-sci, which I actually have, is voting behavior, which is a terrifying thought as I watch this election, I must say, or as I watch the election unfold. And, um, you know, I, um, even despite that, interestingly, wrote my thesis on technology companies collaborating and whether or not that was an antitrust violation in light of, things that I gone on in government at the time it was a pretty interesting, uh, uh, connectivity to what I did now.
1: Well, <laughs> you know, you give people, I've, I've been on this show for a while and you've given people such a hard time for like their dorkiness. And I, I think that's at the level of anything I've heard, Lisa.
2: I am not denying it.
1: I am not denying it. Wow. So you're, you're more like a closet. You're, you're, you're just coming out of the closet.
2: <laughs> yeah. I'm a closet nerd.
1: <laughs> all, right, all right. Well. Um, with that in mind, so um, uh, I'd love to turn to our uh, guest, uh, Susanna Fox, uh, who we're so excited to uh, that she's joining us today. And um, I'd, uh, I'd love to uh, hear about how you went, uh, Susanna, from poli-sci to public service. But um, maybe before we get there, it would be useful to begin with a quick overview for listeners. Can you tell us a little bit about your current role, uh, uh, the CTO of uh, Health and Human Services?
0: Sure. So... As the Chief Technology Officer at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, I run an innovation lab. We call it the HHS Idea Lab, and in good government practice, it's that's an acronym for Innovation, Design, Entrepreneurship, and Action. And the charge of the office of the CTO at HHS is to promote the use of open government, open innovation, and open data throughout the department, and that means encouraging it to happen at um, NIH, CDC, FDA, um, even Indian Health Services and, and other parts of the agency. Because what we're trying to do is create a culture of innovation within a federal agency that, um, that's not necessarily the focus of everyone's workday. <laughs> um, what I also do is help the leadership anticipate the future. So I look across the horizon of what's going on in health and technology and try to bring forward um, not really predictions, but just looking at what are the ripples that I see um, and uh, bring forward what they need to anticipate um, in the next five years.
2: And so what's the most recent couple of ripples you've seen?
0: Well, there's two things that I saw coming into this job that weren't really being um, talked about much um, across HHS. One was virtual reality and the other was the maker movement and the revolution going on in the democratization of manufacturing tools and the rise of um, things like 3D printers. I knew that I was only going to have about 20 months in this role, so I decided to just focus on one of those, and I focused on the maker movement. And um,
1: You chose wisely, it sounds like.
0: <laughs> yeah, thank goodness. <laughs> I think politics is virtual reality
2: anyway. So you know.
0: <laughs> Well, there's there is some really, really cool stuff looking at virtual reality, and I'll just say that, in my opinion, virtual reality is an empathy hack. Um, that if you want to understand what it's like to be a patient um, who's going through a clinical trial or, or who's hospitalized or on the flip side, you're about to go into surgery and you're kind of curious, what is it like to be a surgeon um, who's about to do this hip replacement? Virtual reality can help us to understand um, all the different roles that we play in healthcare. So that's why I'm interested in in VR. So
1: that I mean, that sounds like such an a, an interesting application of it. We sort of heard the flip side from um, one of our guests last year, Brennan Spiegel, one of our favorite guests, who is a, a gastroenterologist at. Um, the uh, at Cedars and and really like a leader in digital digital health and he uh, at Cedars they have a big program in virtual reality but he described some of their early very bluntly some of their early efforts to apply virtual reality modalities to help people dealing with chronic pain and it was almost sort of like it could have been from the TV show Silicon Valley where they're seeing have people who are suffering who are dealing with all these life issues and they're like oh do you mind if we strap this headset onto you while you're like trying to f- figure stuff out? And the first like nine patients who they went to were like, get the thing away from me. So it was not looking at the way you're describing where people who are motivated to be empathetic are going to get a chance to kind of you know, see something literally kind of through somebody else's eyes in a way. Um, but it was more of a kind of a therapeutic as this is an alternative to, you know, having, you can lower someone's pain dose if you sort of um, captivate them with some nice imagery. But they, they were sort of some issues on the translation side that it sounded like they needed to work out. But but back to the maker, can you tell us about some of your, what you've been doing in that area?
0: Yeah. So so um, the what I see in the maker movement um, is that it is really uh, running parallel to the empowered patient movement, um, which is where I spent a lot of my time as a researcher. I spent about 15 years um, doing national surveys and doing field work in in patient communities online. And what I saw was that the internet was democratizing access to information and data and then um, what I saw inklings of at the end of my time as a researcher was that more and more people were sharing designs and actual prototypes of um, hardware, stuff that they made, whether it was, um, it was often assistive technology for you know, someone with low dexterity in their hands, for example. Um, and so coming into government, I looked um, across all of the agencies at HHS and saw pockets of this happening. You know. So at NIH, there are scientists in the lab who are using 3D printers to kind of hack a, a new way, for example, to feed 100 fruit flies at once. Um, and at the FDA, they have a lab where they're trying to understand 3D printing um, because this is something that they're gonna be asked to regulate. And so they need to get ahead of it and understand it Um, on down the line. um, But there wasn't any connection. And so sitting in the office of the secretary, that's something that I could do. I could connect the dots between all of the people, um, you know, all over HHS who were interested in this stuff and connect them sort of like an ambassador to the outside world, I could connect them to people who were part of the maker movement on the outside. Because really what what I have seen is that um, patients and caregivers are problem solvers and the maker movement is all about solving problems and especially not just as individuals, but in terms of um, being part of a community of problem solvers, which is something that I saw in my research um, in terms of people crowdsourcing ideas um, for for ways to, you know, find and fund a, a better clinical trial.
2: You know, it's interesting, Susanna, because when I think about the maker movement, and maybe I think about it incorrectly, um, You know, I think about it as people trying to solve problems because industry just hasn't got to them yet or never will. So they're, you know, looking to solve problems and get them quickly to themselves or to small markets and communities. Um, And it seems to me almost the very antithesis of what the FDA, for instance, um, wants to see, you know, without the benefit of clinical trials and studies and discipline and rigor that you would expect from that type of approach, particularly in the healthcare world, I mean, what do you think about that?
0: What's been really cool is to see um, once you're inside the government and um, you're able to talk, you know, within the family, you meet people who who wouldn't necessarily be allowed to say things in public um, that, they, that they're that they able to say to me. Um, and that is that, that they're very curious, that, that these are people who um, are very curious about what what does the future hold for prosthetics in a world where people are able to um, create a prototype at home or use the 3D printer at the public library? Um, and um, something that's really cool to see also is um, if you're aware of this movement in diabetes, it's a it, hashtag we are not waiting. Um, and they're hacking together their diabetes devices to create their own closed-loop system. And, um, and the FDA actually is saying, we're, we're fine with that. You know, if, if these patients have found a way to loop together these devices, then we're not going to stand in their way. We're not going to stand in the way of that innovation
2: unless they try to sell it to somebody else.
0: Well, it's so so what's interesting to me is that, you know, the 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 FDA is really about safety and efficacy. Um and uh what what they want to do is make sure that people understand that if you're creating for example an upper limb prosthetic, um and there's some really cool stuff going on, you know, with um uh, being able to 3D print um, uh, a prosthetic hand. Um, the FDA actually doesn't need to get involved in, in regulating that. A lower limb prosthetic, however, is something the FDA needs to be involved in that because that actually poses a danger to someone if it fails. Huh. It means they fall. I
1: have no idea that upper versus lower limb prosthetics were regulated differently.
0: Yeah, yeah, and 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 that kind of rubric applies um, uh, in in other cases, and so, making sure that that the American public, especially the entrepreneurial public and the and the maker movement, understand that the FDA is really there to help. They're not there to necessarily get in the way of innovation. So
1: we're from the government. We're here to help you. But you believe that?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, it's it's been it's been really cool. And just to go back to what you said at the at the top of the question that that. Um, it's been neat to talk to my colleagues, you know, in, in the government. It, at the at the federal government level, we pretty much work at scale. You know, so so people are mostly interested in things that are gonna have, you know, um benefit for millions of people. And I mostly in my work have hung out with what I call MacGyver patients who are solving, you know, a problem just for themselves or their kid or their community. But what's been really fun is to show people in the government that there's a lot that they can learn from the N of one um, and and from the MacGyver patients. And how might we make sure that that we um, are lowering the barriers so that um, people do have access to the kind of labs that they need to test their ideas, for example. Um, and and um, opening people up and sort of showing them that there's so much to learn from these um, small businesses and entrepreneurs and MacGyver patients has been one of the funnest things that I've done this year.
1: So I love that conceptualization of learning from the from the N of one. And re, and you know, it's even in genetics, this whole concept of learning from the exceptional responders. And this is sort of like a, a, a kind of another manifestation of that. Yeah. Um one of the th- one of the things that you've talked about it in a recent talk, um w- which I, I thought was just, just, just so interesting, is you talk about entrepreneurship as a vehicle to drive cultural change. Could you tell our listeners what you what what that means to you
0: so the office of the CTO at HHS is is um, was created in the Obama administration and um, it almost should have a title of chief innovation officer or maybe even entrepreneur in residence because the idea is that the the world is moving too quickly for the federal government to pursue um, solutions in in the usual way that we've done things Um, and that we need to bring in more of an entrepreneurial spirit. Um, And so we do that by um, literally bringing in entrepreneurs. So we have an entrepreneur in residence program. Um, And what's great about that is that the problem is identified by someone within HHS. So the CDC came to us and said, Um, we have a significant issue where we have legacy databases that need to be updated and we can't hire data scientists quickly enough and we've got this really significant gap. Um, Can you find us some data scientists? And so um, the Entrepreneur in Residence Program is one where we go out and, and find these specialized individuals and tell them, just come in for one year tour of duty with the government. And instead of hiring a contractor who maybe would take the intellectual property with them when they leave, or, you know, let's be honest, the, the job of a contractor or a consultant is to keep getting more and more contracts, not necessarily to focus on solving the problem quickly, whereas the entrepreneur in residence comes in and says, I'm going to solve this problem in a year. Um, and and you guys know that... that um, the the entrepreneurial spirit is one where they pursue a goal without regard to resources currently controlled.
2: So, Susanna, let me ask you: Is it hard to get people who could make you know hundreds of thousands of dollars as data scientists in industry to come into government and and sacrifice the the ca- the cold hard cash? I mean, how hard is that?
0: I have to tell you, it is. It is. It has been one of the great surprises and most wonderful aspects of this job. Over the course of of this program, we've we've placed 21 entrepreneurs and residents all across the operating divisions at HHS. We've received over 450 applications for those spots.
2: Wow, that's amazing.
0: Um, and what
2: is it about those people that makes them want to do it? What is the characteristic that drives them to to public service? Do you think? It's
0: um, what's been really fun is so so I'll frankly come out to to. Silicon Valley, I'll, I'll go to places where, um, you know, there are a lot of startups, there's a lot of entrepreneurs. Some of it is, is people who um, have maybe recently had an exit from a startup or, um, you know, have had a career, a successful career, um, and they're looking to now sort of, you know, um, serve their country.
1: Atone for their efforts and make the world a better place. <laughs>
0: The, the other thing that happens is, is that we get people who are um, newer in their careers. Um, and the pitch that I make to them is that if you are going to be a healthcare entrepreneur in the United States, you have to do a tour of duty in the government. You will never understand this so-called healthcare system that we have unless you come in and learn what it's like to work at CMS or what it's like to work at FDA or NIH or any of the other. Places in the government, um, but the characteristic that we look for is someone who um, we we ask some questions to get at. When have you hit a barrier, and and how did you get through it? And we we look for people who do not stop. They pursue that goal no matter what happens because that's the kind of spirit that you need to bring. Because. Everything that you've heard about the bureaucracy of the federal government is real.
1: Yeah, I've heard some rumors.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we in the office of the CTO can provide some maps and some secret passageways and, and help with some things. But in general, you just need to be absolutely tenacious.
1: Now, how do you balance that? So, you know, one of the you know defining characteristics, let's say, the early Facebook employees, right? It was like move fast and break things. But Obama just was giving, you know, at this wonderful event. Um, I think it was in Pittsburgh, right? Yeah. This uh, this sort of um, uh, uh, you know innovation event. He sort of didn't quite dress down the people in Silicon Valley, but he he gave them a sort of some you know some cautionary advice, you know, saying that hey. Just this move fast and break thing doesn't necessarily bring everybody along, and you need to do things a little bit more responsibly. I don't know. Would you agree with that characterization, and how, does, how do you balance those, those, those uh, uh, two needs?
0: So you're absolutely right that move fast and break things is not how the federal government works. And to Move
2: slow and break things, I think, is how it usually works. <laughs> you're the Berkeley person.
0: <laughs> I would underline that, uh, especially for healthcare that, you know, this is a high wire act. Um, we have so many lives and so many people that count on us. And um, and, and so, for, for that reason, we need to have um, special attention in healthcare. Um, and yet, there needs to be space for experimentation. Um, and so, um, in terms of the Entrepreneur-in-Residence Program, the key is that we embed these folks with a team that wants them, that says we, we have a problem and we know we don't have the expertise on staff to solve this, please f- help us find someone. Um, one of my favorite stories is, is that um, the folks who oversee the organ donation tracking system in the United States, um, it was a completely analog system. The doctors and nurses who would be involved in organ procurement would handwrite 50 to 80 labels um, per procurement, and uh, they, so HRSA, um, knew is the part of the agency that oversees this. They knew they, they wanted somebody who was a logistics expert, that maybe if we could bring somebody in from FedEx or UPS who knows about package tracking, because that's really what we're talking about, and so that's what we did. We found a 10-year veteran of UPS, David Cartier, and he came in and completely revolutionized the organ donation tracking system. He didn't have a deep background in healthcare. He had a deep background in logistics. That's the kind of thing that we're able to do. We're able to help people take a leap forward, not just a step forward, but we did it carefully. You know, so David did, created a prototype and put it just in three sites for testing. You know, We didn't try to change the whole thing overnight. We, we did a small experiment that was successful. And we've done that over and over. And another one of our programs that I just have to brag about because its I didn't start it, but I think it's awesome, the Ignite Accelerator, um, which is kind of like Y Combinator for HHS employees. And it's, uh, it's very competitive to get in. Last round, we got 100 applications for 23 spots. Um, and the teams are often multidisciplinary. And they're attacking one discrete problem. They're asking a question. And what we teach them is how to do customer interviews. So you can't, you can't get out of our program without having done 50 customer interviews. And what people tell us is that it changes the way they do their work for the rest of their time at HHS.
2: Turning lean startup into lean government, huh?
0: Yeah, exactly. And so, and so you know, move fast, break things. I'll just say, is just an incredibly scary phrase to people who work in the government. People who choose public service and people who choose to work in the federal government, um, they're not necessarily people who, um, you know, are are have the entrepreneurial spirit um, in their hearts to begin with.
1: Yeah, that was suggested by Zootopia, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting, Susanna, because
2: you, I think when you were... St- Before government and before your stint at Robert Wood Johnson, (laughs) um, you were running the the health and technology group at Pew Research Center. I think you started back there right around 2000, right? Yep,
0: yep, back in the day.
2: Back in the day. So that was the day before, (laughs) you know, a lot of this health technology stuff was real. Um, And you were sitting there looking at it and predicting, you know, what you thought was going to happen, reporting on what you thought, what you saw happen. What is the biggest surprise so now you are here you are fifteen sixteen years later, what is the prediction that that you're most uh surprised oh, that's a great uh, perhaps question. came true and and what are you least surprised um, you know what do you what did you see coming a mile away?
0: What I still am amazed by is that that we still aren't taking advantage of um the whole population um that there there are so many great ideas that um we're still not taking advantage of um you know, in, in terms of really, truly involving um, uh, clinical trial participants in the design of clinical trials, um, that we're still not involving, um, you know, for example, parents of kids with cystic fibrosis, y- y- we're not listening to them about how to better design the protocols. Um, it's still, even though, you know, we're we're 15 years into the patient revolution, and there are still people who are just hearing the news <laughs> that, <laughs> that there's a population of, of um, empowered patients um, who, who are ready to contribute. Yeah, it's,
2: it, it's kind of incredible. Uh, you know, I, I, uh, I was just, you know, at uh, the MedSea Engage conference, and Eric Topol was on the stage, you know, and he was talking in this case about his botched knee surgery, and he seemed so shocked you know as a patient to having co- experienced bad health care. Yep. And um yet, you know, it's not like he doesn't know what healthcare is like. So, you know, I think that separation that we all seem to perpetuate between the patient and the and the rest of the system is it's so hard to break through.
0: It really is and and there's a lot that still stands stands in the way. Um uh but but I think the culture is shifting to acknowledge that people have something to contribute, that everybody has something to learn and everybody has something to teach. And that's, you know, I, I still have hope that, that that is where we're heading eventually. The prediction that, um, it wasn't really a prediction. It was, it was, <laughs> you know, some of the stuff I look back and, and, I'm, and I'm thinking, you know, this just is so obvious. I can't believe that people thought that it was news when I started talking about mobile health and And telling people about the trends that I was seeing in our national surveys about the rise of of mobile devices um gosh, you know two thousand six two thousand seven um, the um you know urging people to really get ready for mobile house and and um and so now you know we we are seeing so much great stuff going on, but it could go even further. Um, And so I'm really hopeful that that we still um, are going to see even more revolution in terms of the devices and the ability of, you know, location-aware health.
1: So... um I got a question about patient engagement. So first of all, I love what you've again what what you've really been advocating—the concept of patients as partners in discovery. Actually, 15 years ago, I started a Mass General program called a training program called the Pasteur that was focused on this exact concept. And I, I I feel like it's such so important. I appreciate the you know the the idea that a way of breaking through the silos is if people are were just sort of empowered and. Sort of seized hold of their own data, you know. Get my health data, but except for when people are really sick, people want to think about other stuff. There was, you know, they're not always so keen to seize their health data. And if anything, I I wonder if the disruptive power of the you know pa- patient engagement you know movement um, you know, is not going to break through the silo. Is not going to get the scale that. Some, that some folks are, are hoping. Is this something that you worry about and and, and what can be done to have the patient empowerment uh, uh, motivation really deliver the change that so many feel the system needs?
0: Well, I think about it in terms of, um, I do indeed, I tend to focus on looking at the alpha geeks in, in the field, the, the people living with rare disease or people living with disability. And um, and so seeing the outliers move in towards the center is, is something.
1: But you still got to cross the chasm, right?
0: Yeah. And so so that's the pattern that I've seen um, in terms of self-tracking, for example, that it's becoming more mainstream. And, and that's what we've seen in terms of, you know, it used to be unusual that people would, um, before they go in to see a doctor, um, that they would, uh, you know, do a search online for their symptoms. And now that's that's just assumed, everybody does that. And so um, in terms of patient engagement, what I'm um, observing is that there are still pockets of people that are truly engaging with their information and, and with their data. Um, and what I wanna see it, it grow bigger in the mainstream in terms of, um, you know what might we do? Like the success of Text for Baby with with engaging um, pregnant women with um, self care during their pregnancy. How might we expand on that? Um, and um, I <laughs> what what I'm really hoping to see is that um, all of the um, consumer engagement behaviors that we're experiencing by, you know, before we go out to a restaurant, we, we look at the Yelp reviews before we, um, we buy a car or choose a school or, or make any major purchase. If there is transparency of, of pricing and transparency of quality, then, then people are engaged consumers. Now, we obviously have a real issue in healthcare where we don't have transparency of pricing and we don't have transparency of quality. And that's something that, um, again, I'm really excited that that this was part of the portfolio that I got to work on within HHS, the Health Data Initiative, where we're freeing as much data as we can um, and encouraging other parts of the healthcare system to free the data. Wouldn't it be amazing? So right now, 85% of the data that CMS holds, which is just claims data, is now publicly available on healthdata.gov. Um, what if the VA um, made their data free, you know, in an anonymized way? And that's, you know, some of the programs where, um, you know, the, the um, Million Vets Initiative where people are starting to say, yeah, I'll donate my anonymized record for research. What if we started to really be able to understand and and um, make the data available so that healthcare could become more like a consumer market.
1: So, speaking of healthcare and consumer markets, we're basically out of time. But I had one other question I was really interested in your perspective on. Um, except in Arizona, you can't get you can't just order your own lab tests. If you want to check your labs, if you want to do something, you still need some physician to sign off on it. Um, do you think that that policy should change?
0: Wow. That is actually outside the scope of my work. It's it's a really interesting question, but it's one that I actually haven't studied.
1: Okay, see, all that experience in D.C. has been helpful. That is, <laughs> <laughs> that is how you handle that, my friends. Um, all righty. Well, well any- actually,
2: can I have uh, my last question? And in, in, in like in one word or or two, as you now now you think about 15 years from now, Susanna, and you're you're back at Pew or wherever you are, but. Um, what is the, what is the prediction you've made that fifteen years from now has come true?
0: Oh, that that the transformation that we need in healthcare is a recognition that the internet gives us access not only to information and data, but also to each other. That that's that's what's going to unlock innovation in healthcare. That that when we recognize that we all have something to contribute. To the, to the understanding of health and human services, that's when we're really going to unlock innovation.
1: It wasn't the prediction that a reality TV to... St- oh, ah! <laughs>
0: so um,
2: thank you very much, Susanna, for your time. So interesting. Always wonderful to talk to you. Thank you. And um, we wish you tremendous luck on your next endeavor. I look forward to seeing what that turns out to be.
0: Thanks.
2: Yeah, it's always wonderful to talk to Susanna because she brings such a human touch to what she does and cares so much about... Actually, improving the lives of people and finding ways to engage a broad audience in, in looking for solutions.
1: She's just such a catalytic presence. It's, uh, it's, it's really incredible what she's been able to do um, by, by dint of her vision, her perspective, her experience. And, um, you know, it really is a real testament that someone like that can be so involved in, um, in making the government better. It's really inspiring.
2: Absolutely true. And we've uh, enjoyed our show today, as always, and appreciate our sponsor, DNA Nexus, the secure and compliant cloud platform that enables enterprise users to analyze, collaborate around, and integrate massive amounts of genetic and other health data. You can follow Lisa Suning at VentureValkyrie.com, as well as on the Timmerman Report. And you can follow David's writing at Forbes.
1: Tectonics is produced by Connected Social Media and recorded in Tectonic Studio B in scenic Mill Valley, California. Arrivederci a se